Hello, how's it going? Hey, it is going okay. It's been kind of rainy and gray here lately, and it's supposed to snow a little bit tomorrow. And being in Missouri, a dusting of snow means that uh, they are probably going to cancel school. So I may have a snow day with my kids tomorrow. Ah, well, so same thing happens in my neck of the woods. And I have to say, I am scheduled to preach next this coming Sunday. And there's snow in the forecast for the weekend. And the church that I'm preaching at is like an hour away from here. And I have to go over a mountain pass to get there. So I'm... Mm. Shelly was asking me, she's like, what are you going to do if it snows? I'm like, uh, welcome hell or high water. I will be there. So I will put on ch- chains if I have to and leave four hours early, but I will be there. And back in the day when I was associate pastoring up in Boston, there were plenty of nights when I would go to the church the night before because it was going to snow and I would just sleep over at the church. Yeah. And that was the only way I could guarantee I was going to make it. But we oh, never yeah. canceled. So that's what we did. I've done that for work quite a bit because we mm. cannot cancel. Like, yeah. one has to stay open. So, um, yep. yeah, so I know that drill. That's a fun one. Well, how are you doing? You know, I am pretty good. It's, we're just settling into New Year's trends, right? Like uh, my semester Mm -hmm. starts today. So I'm looking forward to a new set of classes and yeah, I'm getting ready to preach this weekend and work is busy. I've been working out with my son. He is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That kid is strong and I am not. So uh, it's interesting. I can totally understand. I went rock climbing with my son Last week, we're going to try to start doing this as a thing. And he demolished me. Oh, no. Hey, it's funny. You mentioned on a prior episode that your son was going rock climbing with your daughter. And I'm actually curious to find out how did that go? Oh, um, so my daughter, who has been horseback riding for several years, realized in doing rock climbing that she preferred horseback riding. So next Monday is her first time back to horseback riding, actually. And that's wonderful. What could be better than realizing, taking a break from something, trying something else out, and then realizing what you actually care about? So it went great, but not for any of the reasons we expected. But it did open up a spot for there to be somebody else going to the rock climbing gym with my son. And so I said, Hey, if you want to go, we'll go once a week. I would love to go with you. So that's going to be our thing for right now. Nice. Yeah. He'll rock climb and I'll pretend to rock climb and lay on the mats wheezing. Yeah. There needs to be, you know, there's a, there's a, there are various stages of walking, right? Like there's crawling, but Mm -hmm. what's the actual equivalent? Like you're not rock climbing, maybe rock crawling. So, There's numbers. There's actually numbered pathways. So you start at the lowest number is a 5.5. And you go from 5.5, which is an easy climb, to a 5.6, to a 5.7, all the way up to, I think the highest is 5.12. 
I don't know what those numbers mean other than 5.5 is easy and 5.12 is impossible for me. To put it on uh, kind of what that means, I succeeded in a 5.5 and failed on a 5.6. So this coming week, the very first thing I'm going to do when I'm fresh is that same 5.6 and see if I can do it when I when my muscles are fresh. Nice. Well, not knowing anything about the scale, it seems rather odd to me that the entire scale fits on five point something. Can we just eliminate the five? Yeah. That well, just seems redundant. And, and in what universe is 0. 0.12 higher than 0. 0.5? Yeah, right. That's that's not how numbers work, people. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm clearly not a rock climber. <laughs> clearly neither am I. But maybe in a year I will be. And in the meantime, you are still a quite adequate nerd. So please tell me, what would you like to talk about today? All right. Well, I am really interested to talk about the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, mm. I just finished a book at the end of last year by Madeline Langle, uh, who is a wonderful Christian fiction author, the author of A Wrinkle in Time is the thing she's the most famous for. She's a beautiful writer. She is a deeply passionate Christian. And she wrote this trilogy of reflections on the book of Genesis. And I just finished the first one, which was called, And It Was Good. And in reading it over, I realized that as a teenager, what I thought the beginning of Genesis was for, or what I was supposed to do with it as a Christian, was to defend the historicity of the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. Mm, yes. And so in my high school, I actually wrote one of my early research papers in high school on the historicity of Genesis 1 and 2, just because that's what I was supposed to do as a Christian. Yeah. And what I'm about to say is not a suggestion that Genesis 1 or and 2 are or aren't historical, but it seems to me that not just Genesis 1 and 2, but the whole beginning of Genesis, let's say up to Abraham, it has to be in the Bible for a better reason than just so that I can defend it. <laughs> that's it. Right? Yeah, that's so good. You're you're exactly right. And it, I think anybody listening to this is going to say, oh, of course, of course, it's there for a better reason than just like, oh, good, now you can defend against evolution. So there you go. Yeah. So the question I want to start with is, what is that reason? What does the beginning of Genesis have to do with me and my spiritual life in the 21st century? That's such a good question, and I want to get there, but I also want to lay a little bit more groundwork, and it's groundwork that we went over a couple episodes ago when we asked the question, is Jesus God? And for any listener that hasn't listened to that, the answer is yes, but in what way? Why? That is really what we wrestled with. And I want to kind of do the same thing here and just say, if I can put it this way, how intellectually honest are we going to be in asking this question? Because I think if we're intellectually honest, when we read Genesis 1 through 11, we're going, whoa, 
there is some weird stuff happening here. And it, there's some things going on in here that never happen in our modern world, right? People living to 800 plus years old. Like, are yeah. we dealing with reality here? Or are we dealing with myth? Are we dealing with what is it? I think is a part of the question. And it's one that I don't feel like we're often allowed to ask in Christian circles. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a great question. I think when you ask of any type of literature, what is this? It sets you up to know how to read it and how to hear its message, right? And Which I just want to say, that is such a rich thing. If it sets you up to understand it and to receive its message, well, then that's exactly what we need to be doing with the Bible. We don't just want to read it, say we believe it, check the box and walk away. We want to hear it, receive it, understand it. Like, And if that's going to set us up, then please, let's do that. Let's not shy away from it because it's somehow not allowed in the church. Yeah, absolutely. So let me come to this question, throwing the weight of the question onto you as a recent seminary graduate. In your studies, did you ever address the question of what is this? What type of literature? What is the purpose of this writing? Hmm. You know, very often you introduce a question with, as a recent seminary graduate, I want to back That's up. That's just my way of saying I don't have an answer, so I hope you do. <laughs> well, I hope, you know, anybody that's been to seminary should be able to tell you that, look, you learn an absolute ton in seminary. There's no doubt about it. But I think what you really end up doing is kicking down a whole lot of doors and peering inside and saying, look at this whole world of information yet to be unpacked in your brain. Okay, next door, kick down the door. Look at this whole world of information that you've yet to consider. And then just on down the corridor you go and then you graduate. And you're just like, okay, I got exposed to a whole lot of stuff and I have no answers. Not that you have no mm -hmm. answers, but at any rate, I don't want no. to mythologize what a seminary education is. No, a, a really good friend of mine often says that there are two types of seminary graduates. The seminary graduates who come out confident that they have more answers and the seminary graduates who come out uncomfortable because they have more questions. And he vastly prefers the latter. Yeah. And I might be in some wild, weird in-between because I am certain I learned stuff in seminary and I learned mm -hmm. things and I am solid on what I learned and I know that I know it, but I don't know if that would even be the bulk of my experience. I think the bulk of my experience was a bunch more questions. So I have more information and more questions than when I started. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. If I show you a map of China, you might be able to ask me some questions about it. But if I give you a history lesson on China and tell you about the geography of a particular area of China and tell you all the local lore of that spot, you will know more and be able to ask better questions, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that's what seminary does for you is it, it really teaches you how to ask better questions. 
and to know how to track down good answers. Yes. How do I understand right. what is a good resource and what is not a good resource? How do I understand who has thought this through and who is just shooting from the hip? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. So you have that education as well. And so I am looking forward to this conversation just because we're going to wrestle with this. And there are a lot of great, wonderful, godly scholars out there that would answer this question in different ways. My preferred answer is the one. So by the way, the question that we were originally wrestling with is what is this? What kind of genre are we dealing with? And the reality is Genesis 1 through 11 is almost a genre unto itself. There is nothing else in the rest of the Bible that quite resembles this genre. Now, I've also read some scholars that say, yeah, but there's still a lot of unifying details from 1 through 11 and 12 through 50. So it's not as though it is disjointed completely, but this 1 through 11, Gordon Wenham describes this as proto-history. Proto in that it describes where our origins come from and how everything came to be and why, but also proto in the fact that it is uh, kind of prehistorical, pre not prehistorical, because I think history is actually still a part of what Genesis 1 through 11 is. I, I still think it's history, but it is clearly not history in the way that we moderns document and recount history. This is how ancients, even before those who wrote it down, chronologized actual events. So anyway, I I think it's proto-history. I think that's the best term to describe what it is we're dealing with. But what about you? What is your way of approaching this in terms of what is the genre? So when I look at this, I actually, it feels to me like it needs to be split into two pieces. And this is primarily because of the list of forebears in chapter five. Chapter five gives us our very first list of so-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so. And anytime I read that, it screams that there is a grounding in something that is more historical than made-up myth, right? Mm-hmm. There's something grounding in real life about that. Absolutely. And so I, I, I think that there is some deep grounding there. One of the things that I, one of my seminary professors 20-some-odd years ago, what was his name? Dwayne Garrett? Dr. Garrett. But anyway, his argument for Genesis chapter 1 was that the closest analog to it in terms of genre in the rest of the Bible was actually the groups of seven in the book of Revelation. So the seven trumpets, the seven seals, and so on. And his argument was these are actually a series of visions similar to the visions that John has in Revelation. And so you read uh, Genesis chapter one almost as apocalyptic. Oh, that's fascinating argument, right? Absolutely. Um, Again, this is one of many theories, right? That cannot really be proven. This is why endless amounts of ink is spilled trying to describe what's going on here. 
because it doesn't really fit any other pre-category. Like it just any other known category just is close enough that you can make the argument, but maybe not perfect in every way. So even that argument, as tantalizing as it is, you know, sure, I'd hold it up to equal plausibility as some others. Yep. But so what is the actual genre here? It's really hard to say, but I think we can confidently say these chapters are trying to set us up to understand the world in which we live. Oh, absolutely. You know, if you take the chap creation, Adam and Eve, Babel, and Noah, those are our four big stories, right? Mm-hmm. If you include Cain and Abel as part of the Adam and Eve story, I guess. So if those are our stories, those five stories, I guess, I think those function as, let's call them cornerstones in the foundation of how we should see the world. But I really like what you said as well in terms of how the genealogies ground this in historical events. It legitimizes these stories and says, this isn't just a collection of stories that helps you orient to the world, and it's no better than what a myth would do in that regard. It's actually bringing you historical facts about how things came to be. Yeah, C.S. Lewis always called it the true myth, Hmm. right? Um, Which I I get, but the word myth in our society is so loaded. Like, I don't know if he would, I don't know if he'd use those words today. Maybe he would, but. I think he would, because he was trying to draw a parallel, not to what our contemporary listeners would understand, but what that word meant in earlier classical understanding. Which in classical was his understanding training. Yeah, that's his thing, right? And so myth means an explanation of why the world is what it is, and historical means actual fact. And so a historical myth is the one myth that actually happened. Yeah. And somewhere in there is good enough for me as a working hypothesis, as a reader. Yeah. What really sunk in with me, particularly when my friend and I were translating uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, as we worked through it, just line by line, moment by moment, what really stood out to me is that these are origin stories. And Mm. again, again, not like a myth is an origin story. Like you said, it's it's the myth that actually happened, or it's the origin story that actually tells the truth of what happened. But these are clearly origin stories, because even in the genealogies, right, these genealogies will dump out into some little historical nugget. And, you know, oh, and then these people became all the people who, like, they became really skilled at making instruments. And these are the people that became really skilled in working with iron and like these people groups and their specialties mm. really come to light, which sounds funny because like, I think in a modern context, we could look at that and say, well, yeah, it's not like iron just originated with this people group over here and music originated with this people group over there. That seems a little too simplistic, but I think it may be a modern example of this is something that you and I experienced on our trip to Arizona. And when we went to the indigenous dinner theater night, 
one of the things that we learned was that the Navajo in that area of the country had developed pottery to a, a whole new level, really because that mm. was those were the things that were available to them in their natural environment. And if you want to learn about pottery, you go to the Navajo because they have perfected this. It's not like pottery originated with the Navajo, but seriously, they're the experts. And so I think the same thing can be found to be true in all of these origin stories that says, no, 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 I, I do think some people groups really specialized in some things, really as a mm -hmm. large part of their their natural environment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think the origin story idea is fascinating because there is a lot of, this is how a wide, wide range of things get started. Here's how the world itself gets started. Here's how families get started. Here's how sin gets started. Here's how music gets started. Here's how war gets started. Here's how languages gets started. All sorts of here's how fill in the blank gets started really captures a lot of what's going on in these chapters. So I think that well, origin story idea is great. Yeah. Well, and even if you turn the chapter, right, and you go on to chapter 12, this is how Israel started. Israel started with Abraham. And so I think one of the things that I find to be a unifying factor in all of the book of Genesis is this word toledot. Um, and I'm stealing this from one of my professors, Dr. Hess. He argues that toledot is kind of this unifying factor throughout the whole book because Toledot really just means kind of the generations of or the origin of or the, you know, we might say the genesis of, right? These are the origin stories and they all begin with Toledot. These are the generations of Noah and on down the line. So you get these genealogies, but then you also get some of these historical events that took place in that prominent person, family, whatever. And he even says that accounts for some of the rhythm and ways of understanding Genesis 1. Because if we're going to talk about the origin stories of the earth, you can't use the Toledot hook. Because the Toledot is so-and-so beget so-and-so, so-and-so beget so-and-so. And that's the exact thing that Israel was spouting against saying, no, Yahweh initiated this. It's not as though the earth was birthed from the sun or, you know, mother earth delivered so-and-so. It's not, you can't do the generations in the same way. So you have to find a new rhythm, a new rhyme, a new way to present the story that has just as much flow and beat and progress without saying generations of. That's a great point. Well, and it, and that bridges over for me to the practical why this matters to me as a Christian in the 21st century when you say it that way. The best way I can explain this is with another origin story. So J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, wanted to write an origin story of the Lord of the Rings. And so he wrote what ultimately became the Silmarillion. And the first time I read the Silmarillion, 
it starts off with the God character creating the world. And then you zoom in a little bit to the created order and the gods are operating on this sort of gigantic timeline. And everything happens very, very slowly. And then you zoom in a little bit more and you zoom in a little bit more. But there's this clear sense that on the grand scale, God and the great supernatural beings are in operation, but they are operating on this grand scale that is always present, and we just aren't on that scale. And I think when you think of Genesis as the beginning, or, or as the, this is where it started, this is the story, it reminds me in that same sense of zooming in, you know, you have Genesis 1 and 2, which is this giant story of origins. And then you zoom into, here's how people started. And then you zoom into, eventually, until you get to, here's how Israel started. The reminder for me is that the backdrop of every individual story is the fact that this is the world God created and that he is the great operator or actor in the story. Yeah, I like that you're talking about this uh, zooming in, zooming out idea and thinking about this on the grand scale. And I think one of the grand scale elements that come to light for me is just how foreign these chapters really are to our experience. I mentioned before, like the Mm -hmm. people living to 800 plus years old, at least antediluvian, right? Before the flood. Um, Mm -hmm that people were living this long. And I think this is, again, recognizing our modern understanding of who God is and how he has revealed himself to be behaving in this point in time does not define him for all times. And his relationship to the earth as it stands today does not define him for all times. And so if he could create even some odd mixture of semi-divine, semi-human beings that Genesis seems to allude to, or he could allow humanity to live for 800 plus years old, or whatever, prior to the flood, that doesn't lock him in and say, well, that's how he has to behave after the flood, or that's how he has to behave today. And so I guess what I appreciate about what you're talking about, the zoom in, zoom out, I want to zoom really far out, even beyond some of my expectations, if it's possible to do that, and recognize the fact that these expose me to a world that is foreign and yet is very familiar to God. This is how he chose to interact. This is how he chose to make it. This is how he chose to put the pieces together. And even if it's not common to me, that doesn't matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I jotted down and it hits on, I think, the same point of foreignness is the fact that we have this way of seeing the world uh, that's often been described as sort of a two-tier way of seeing the world, with level one being the natural world and level two being the supernatural world, uh, and we live in level one. And even as Christians, I think we operate in that way of thinking far more than we mean to or want to. And Genesis, for me, really 
messes with that way of thinking. It hurts my brain because I have assumptions <laughs> that don't allow for some of the things to happen. Right. Can and would God rain fire down on a city? Can and would people, rational, wise, intelligent people, think they could build a tower up to heaven? Can angels and women have offspring? Yeah. Can God show up as three separate individual people? Yeah. You know, it, this whole thing reminds me, yesterday I was teaching Sunday school to fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And we did this, I build it as a science experiment. I very clearly oversold that. So what we did was we took just a couple of different measuring cups and some water. And I took a cup of water, poured it into the big measuring cup and said, okay, how much water do I have in here? Okay, we have a cup. Well, what if I add another cup? Like how much would we have then? They're all like, oh my gosh, two cups. One plus one is two. This is not hard. And then I'm like, okay, well, what if I dumped one cup back out? But then you'd have one cup. I mean, come on. How how dumb do you think we are? We are in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. I'm like, okay, well, great. We've done all that. We proved you right. Now let's change to oil. So we pull the oil in and we do the whole you know song and dance over again. And by the end of it, they're like, oh my gosh, this is too easy. And I go, okay, well, it's easy. You all are very confident in yourselves. What if I could show you a time when taking two cups of oil and pouring a cup out meant you still had two cups, right? And then we go back to the story of Elijah and the widow and how you know she never ran out of flour and she never ran out of oil until the rains came and the uh, famine was over. And we've come to expect, and even, I'm not accusing my fourth, fifth, and sixth graders of this, but like we've even developed an arrogance around what we believe we know. This is the way the world always operates. It is the way it is, period, full stop. And then we fail to recognize God can and does operate outside of those boundaries whenever he wants. Well, and this is, can I pick on your language there a little bit? Sure. See, I think what Genesis challenges us to think is that God doesn't operate outside of those things, that the inside and outside language is wrong, that God is inside and that our assumptions are what make there a, a box that God has to operate outside of. <laughs> our assumptions are the box, not that God was ever yeah. in it or out of it. Right. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, am I suggesting that you know, if I put two cups of water together and then pour one out and do that all 500 times, I might get different answers. Well, I think the correct answer is, I mean, it's definitely possible. God can do whatever he wants. You know, my instinct when I say that, at first I was going to say, of course I wouldn't suggest that. But I think <laughs> the whole point is, if we live in a, what I guess I would call a dead universe, a universe mm. with no person behind it, then yeah, it's going to be the same over and over and over again. But if I live in a living universe with a living God behind it, the fact of the matter is I have no idea what's going to happen next time. And mm. I, I love the fact that science even acknowledges this in certain circumstances. I love the fact that like certain things are called theories rather than facts. Sure. Because even though they're tr they've been true in every circumstance that's ever been checked, it's still unprovable that they'll always be true. Hmm. And so it's still just a theory. There's a deep humility in that. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we don't live as lay science people in a naturalistic world. We don't live that way, right? We live believing in our boxes more than God. Mm. Or believing that God is on the other side of our boxes, maybe. Right, right. Or wholly contained within them is probably how I'd phrase it. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's even, you know, one of the things I thought was fascinating in making the, telling the story of Cain and Abel, Madeline Langell argues that a loving God only brings judgment for redemptive purposes. Mm, and yeah. I always have a hard time with that because I, it's hard for me to see the redemptive purpose of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think that was redemptive. I think that was just justice. That was God setting the balance straight. And thousands or hundreds or let's say hundreds of people die. There's no redemption there. But we want there to always be a redemptive vibe because that's what we think justice should be, right? In our modern way of thinking, you know, we want to rehabilitate. Uh, And so we always focus on, is this rehabilitative? And I'm not sure that God is always asking that question. Sometimes there's just consequences, you know, and and I'm not, I pose that not to make an argument about the purpose of justice in this situation. We could have that conversation later if you want. But my point is, I think that the stories about origins here, however we think about the world, I think they are going to challenge us to think differently and that we should be inviting them to challenge us to think differently not to confirm our own pre-existing biases. Right. Well, yeah, I like what you just said there, not to confirm our pre-existing biases, right? And I think that's where you started this episode, by saying that's the pre-existing bias we were given as kids. You read the beginning of Genesis to prove the historicity of the creation account, period, full stop. That's what it's there for. And to break out of that bias and to break out of some assumptions and just allow the text to speak in whatever way it needs to speak, that's just such a better approach. It's something we hit on almost every time we talk about the Bible, is that we want to approach the Bible with humility. It gets to define the conversation, and I don't. Mm. And so if it thinks that the primary emphasis needs to be on good and evil, fine. If it thinks the primary emphasis needs to be on history, fine. If it thinks the primary emphasis needs to be on origins, fine. And our answer is always going to be provisional, knowing that a new generation, a scholar from a different culture, somebody from a different tradition might help me see a better and more accurate answer. Yeah. Like Langle does. I mean, It was fascinating. This is, I think, what really drew me to this conversation was, you know, reading an artist's take on this. Uh, She said things I'd never thought of in my life. And I've read commentaries and studied things. And like, for example, how many times have you heard the question about why God would create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the first place? Have you heard this question? Yeah. Right. This makes sense. If the only function of it is to be a temptation, why make it in the first place? Great question. I've asked that question. My kids have asked that question. I've never gotten a satisfactory answer until I read an artist's reading of that story. And her reading of that story is, of course it was forbidden for now. 
there's nothing in the story that says it was going to be forbidden forever. Hmm. We just weren't mature enough to get there yet. We weren't ready for that tree. And whether that is accurate or not, I think it hits that point that you were saying earlier. There's a lot we don't know, and we got to be just be real careful in our reading and to note our assumptions. I love that it was the perspective of an artist that helped reshape the whole question for you. That is so awesome. And honestly, if I can, I want to use that as a bridge and just start asking the audience, what is it that you see in Genesis 1 through 11? Because we've heard from a lot of theologians personally on this topic, but we haven't heard from a lot of artists. We haven't heard from a lot of plumbers, teachers, stay-at-home moms, receptionists, mail carriers, whatever it is that is your profession, how does Genesis 1 through 11 strike you? What has God taught you through these passages? I think that rounds the conversation out in ways that we desperately need. I totally agree. I love how seeing the Bible through someone else's eyes clarifies what God is trying to say for me. It's why reading the Bible in community is so important. Uh, We refine each other. So yes, Mm -hmm. please let us know and have a conversation about this with somebody that you know. Share this episode of our podcast with them. Set up a time to have lunch or coffee or talk on the phone or whatever. Find somebody this week and ask them, what do you see when you read Genesis 1 through 11? (laughs) that'll be a fascinating conversation. Right? Yeah. I would love to know what somebody else says. I would love to hear what an Orthodox Jew sees, what somebody who's walked away from the faith sees, what someone who's never read it before sees the first time they read it. Like, that would be so interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, until we can hear from our audience, I want to turn it back to you, Josh from Missouri, and I want to find out Beyond Genesis 1 through 11, what else have you been thinking about? You know, I have still been thinking about our conversation from, I think it was last week, about Jesus being God. And I've continued to read the Gospel of Matthew. I actually finished it up in the last couple of days. And, you know, one of the things that struck me that I don't think I said in our conversation last week was... If I ask the question, what is Jesus? That is to say, what is his nature? I definitely stand behind what I said last week, that it doesn't feel to me like that is the question the gospel is trying to answer. But if I ask the question, who is Jesus? And more specifically, within the covenantal relationship between God and his people, who is Jesus? I think Matthew in particular starts to answer that question really powerfully. And he starts to answer it both people. He is both sides of the covenant. He is the creator who is in complete control of all of creation. And he is the one good man, person, Jew, covenant partner that God has that fully can fulfill the covenant once and for all, for all people. Hmm. And that shift from what is Jesus in nature to 
who is Jesus in the context of the covenant, just really hit me a lot as I continued reading Matthew this week. So that's my thought. Boy, that's back to asking good questions, right? Mm-hmm. And allowing the text itself to shape the questions you should be asking or teaching you what what questions is the text even trying to answer? So I love this dance. Yes, that's exactly it. It's a dance. I was just going to try to say something, but I wasn't going to say it nearly as well. Finding the right questions and finding the right answers is this ongoing lifelong dance with the Bible for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what about you? What have you been thinking about? Yeah, so I mentioned that my classes are starting up this week, and one of my classes is Human Growth and Development. And earlier this morning, I watched a video that talked about the importance of movement and how movement is important when the baby is still in in utero and Mm -hmm. how movement is important to a developing infant and how movement is important to a developing child. And it was kind of talking about showing how adults can help nurture and foster this movement in their child and do so holistically that really sparks brain development. And all throughout the entire thing, you see really good attunement from these adults to these children. And watching how these children thrived, not only with the attunement of the caregiver, but also with the movement that they were sharing whether that was a mother bonding with a child skin to skin while nursing all the way to like a dance class and everybody moving together and exploring how they feel through, you know, okay, you're feeling happy. Can you show me what shape that has? And like using your body to do the shape of happiness, Mm. which is really a fascinating way of integrating both emotion and body movement and, exploring your space and all of these things and such good, healthy moments. And I thought to myself, this is just pure joy. Like I smiled throughout the entire hour long documentary because every moment was so rich in connection and just the best of humanity. And I guess what my thought is, is that we adults get really stuck we get stuck not only in our lack of movement, but in our, we don't have as wide of a range of expressiveness. We don't explore our physical world quite the way a child does. And to just be in the presence of a child and to attune to that child and and step into their world and be silly and move our bodies to explore the world is so rich. And it really helps us adults Remember who we really are. We're not just these automatons that go to work and pay bills and tell their teenagers to be home by curfew and all of these things. We're living, breathing, embodied humans that have a range of emotions and a range of a world to explore. And it was just good. I love that. I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that kids offer us as parents is the opportunity to let go of our egos and be something simpler and more joyful and more experiential Mm -hmm. and more sensory. And 
all of that rolled together, I think is deeply spiritual because I think the reason you can let go of your ego is because you live in a safe world Ooh. where God is present. That's good. I'll have to it's, think on that one. <laughs> and that's awesome. I am really excited, honestly, to continue hear more about hearing more about uh, your developmental class because you know even as we think about growth, which is something we talk about all the time, healthy growth takes into account all of this stuff that is happening within us that is captured in the phrase developmental psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even just kind of relating it back to spirituality for just a second, just thinking about the importance of dance and in terms of body movement and engagement and just so many different advantages to moving through dance. Dance is a part of our spiritual worship. It's in the Psalms. Dancing before mm -hmm. the Lord is is even commanded. We don't see that in a lot of churches. And if we do, we're probably freaked out because they're also like getting slain in the spirit and rolling in the aisles and whatever else. But um, yeah. yeah, speak for your own tradition there, buddy. Um, <laughs> we may, my tradition may need to tone it in a little bit. Okay. The all right. My tradition and the flag wavers and the tambourinists all need to kind of slow it down a little bit. Because, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that's so good. Well, as always, I think it's time for us to transition into what is clearly our favorite segment of our conversation, which is the Witch Josh question. Honestly, it's the old reason we do these podcast episodes. We just like, yeah, we roll out of bed. We're like, how can we embarrass ourselves? Oh, I know. Let's do a Witch Josh. All right. Well, this week's Witch Josh question, hopefully living up to the uh, level of embarrassment you're suggesting is uh, actually which Josh doesn't walk on cracks in the sidewalk. That is phenomenal. I want to know. Yeah. All right. And it is me. I don't even know if you knew this up until before today. We have spent not a lot of time in the last 20 years in the same space, but we've spent sufficient time that I have seen this play out. But what I did not know is whether or not this was a lifelong habit or just something you were doing because you were happily on vacation. Uh, it is it is a lifelong habit, but it is an outgrowth of when I was a kid. I have never tolerated boredom well. And walking from one place to another was horrifically boring to me as a kid. Because it's the one time when you're definitely not doing anything. <laughs> right? Like, and so it was a game I made up for myself as a kid to occupy my mind in these in between times when I was super bored. That's yeah, fascinating. So, I thought yeah. you were going to tell me that you literally adopted the phrase, step on a crack and you'll break your mother's back, and just believed it and then never could break yourself of the habit. Nope. I actually, it might be inaccurate to say I never step on cracks in the sidewalk because if I'm in the middle of thinking about something else, it, it is not something that consumes me every time I'm walking. But if I, if I'm bored or if I'm not thinking about something else, it tends to be where my mind goes again, I think just to keep me occupied. But uh, yeah, so I am one of those weird people who doesn't walk on cracks in sidewalks. Okay. 
you know, we could have named this segment the idiosyncrasies of Josh. Ooh, we could have. But oh well. Which Josh is just fine. Yeah, it works. All right. Let's do it all again next week. That sounds awesome. I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. All right.